Good evening. It is so good to see you in the house of the Lord tonight as we gather together, as we're doing our Bible study together. Uh, how many of you caught me online last day or so? A couple, two or three, a bunch of you got a lot of catching up to do, right? Uh, it's, it's not as easy to, to do that, but uh, if you'll go on the podcast, if you'll go on online to uh, allseasonsworshipcenter.net and pull up uh, what was supposed to have been last Wednesday's uh, sermon, which I'm not apologizing a bit for last Wednesday, so we're not, we're, we're not, we, we can make that work. So if you get a chance, go back, and there's paperwork out in the foyer on Hannah. Uh, in fact, it looks like this, and, and it just uh, gives you a chance to go online, sit down, and do this. So let me just give you a, a quick recap, because Hannah is our first character that walks us through the book of 1 Samuel, and that's our study on the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to use characters... Uh, to walk us through. It would take me, I was telling someone a while ago, it would take me over 20 weeks if I was just to go and just go scripture by scripture. It would take way long. This way I can, I can, I'll jump around a little bit, but I'm getting the main thrust, which is what we've called the crown. Uh, someone is supposed to wear the crown. And that's what it's all about. This battle for the crown, this, this, uh, movement toward the crown. And Hannah starts us off. It seems strange that this woman who is a nobody from nowhere, married to a nobody, has no history, no heritage, and all of a sudden, you know, her, she's the star character of our story. She's, she starts the whole thing off, and it starts because God closes up her womb and says you can't have kids. And through all of that trouble, and, and we kind of broke it down into three steps, basically Hannah's problem Hannah's problem of not having children moves her in direction toward God. God knew by, by pushing this lady, by pressing on this lady, that he would get some precious oil out of it. And so the problem comes because Hannah has beliefs. She has Sarah in the past. She has uh, Rachel in the past who were barren, and they have children. Even Samson's mother uh, it doesn't give her her name, but it says Samson's mother was barren until she had Samson. So she has this history through reading about God that God opens up the womb and God gives miracles. So instead of being mad at God and frustrated at God because of her husband and her, her other uh, co-wife that she has there, she's, she doesn't get upset. She runs toward God. And so we find that first her problem takes her to her response. And we find that she goes and falls before the Lord in the presence at Shiloh, and Eli is there, and he sees her praying, and he thinks she's drunk. She says, no, I'm not. I'm just very vexed. And he blesses her and says, next year, you'll have a child, or you, you'll be blessed and have a child. And she does. She goes home, and we talk about it through that, how she goes from that to worship. You worship comes before you get the miracle. You don't get the miracle, then you worship. You get Worship. She worships. The Bible says her whole countenance of her face changes. She believes God before it ever happens. You'll have to listen to the video to catch all of this. And then number three, it brings us to Hannah's mindset. Hannah has a child, raises this child till he's over three years old, weaned from her, and then she carries him as she promised God, if you'll give me a child, I'll give him back. She takes him to the temple, back to Eli, stands this little boy in front of Eli and says, He's yours. God gave me what, what I asked for. 
And her prayer is such an empowerful prayer, and I wish I had time to re- just redo that. It would take weeks. But just to let you know, her prayer is so powerful and anointed that she is the first person to ever truly declare there will be a Messiah. It's her prayer. You'd think it'd be some guy or some, some, somebody in the Old Testament somewhere, but it is Hannah when she prays who talks about your coming king and your anointed one. The king there means Messiah. She in her prayer, in her, in her chasing God, says, I see it. I see one day that God's going to give us his king. He's going to give us his anointed one. He's going to give us. And so Hannah is a powerful story bringing Samuel into this world. And now we move to this other character I mentioned. His name is Eli. Eli is such an interesting person. And as you pull out your papers, we will walk through. You'll, you'll need a couple of those tonight. Uh, and so as we begin this, Eli is the best way I can go ahead and describe Eli is the way I gave it in the title. Eli is too little, too late. Eli is too little, too late. Go with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verses 22 through 36, and we will read. 1 Samuel 22. Verses 22 through 20, 36. And here, here's what it says. Now, Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not good a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of God to put them to death. And next week we will be dealing with these two young men, so I don't want to get too deep into their lives. Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, so I, I want to just catch that, that... Here is a man who speaks to his sons, tells his sons, you need to change. You shouldn't be doing this. They won't listen to him. But it's because so much has already happened. It's too little, too late. He should have got a belt out a long time ago. He should have done, had a meeting with them way before this moment. Way before they were as, as entrenched as they were. Before he was too old to duel with it. But he doesn't. He just kind of hopes it goes away. And by the time he does confront his sons, it's too late. And it sounds very mean that God is like, and God's going to kill them. But it means literally that they've done reached a point they won't listen. It's not that God does this. Remember in the Bible it says Pharaoh hardened his heart and also God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The two work together. It is not that God just hardens your heart and makes you a bad person so he can do something. No, it's that he looks inside and he realizes that heart will not change. That heart will not turn. So therefore, I will get glory from it the way I decide to get glory from it. If it won't harden, if it won't soften, then I'll harden it some more. And in doing so, there's no question of my judgment. There's no question that I had a right to do what I did. And so we see that now 
the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor of the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear the ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire and from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded from my dwellings and, and honor your sons above by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord of God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and your house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength One interpretation says, I will cut off your arm and the strength of your father's house so that there will not, not be an old man in your house. Then the distress, you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from the altar shall be spared to keep his eyes from grieve in his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign unto you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is a powerful statement. Just like I did last week, there were three parts. I want to use three parts to describe Eli's life. He is a man who does too little, too late. He is 98 years old, as you fill in your paper. He is 98 years old when all of this calamity will hit him. From the time that he is younger is when some anywhere from 10 to 8 to 15 years, somewhere in that range. We don't know exactly how long. We just know that Elkinah will keep coming back yearly and Hannah keeps getting pregnant yearly. So eventually Hannah has three more boys, two more girls, and Samuel is growing from three years old to whatever age he is when all of this calamity will hit. So understanding that he is 98 years old by the time all of this falls apart and he has been a basically a judge, one of the judges, just like Samson, just like others. He has been a judge for 40 years. For 40 years, he has been the judge of Israel. Not only the judge, but also for the nation, he was the priest, the high priest. 
This was one of the most exalted men ever you're going to read about in the Bible. There was nobody in the Bible more revered, who had more authority, who had more power, who had more more influence. Eli was the man among men. When Eli came anywhere, they knew who he was. He had all of this prestige. The problem is, is that his heart did not go as his title went. Go with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 3, 12 through 19. Hebrews 12, or 3, 12 through 19. Here's what it says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living from the living God. We're talking about backsliding. We're talking about walking away. We're not talking about losing something. That's the way arguments are always used to, to try to position it in a way that it sounds. It's like, are you pro-choice? In other words, do you, do you believe in the rights of a mother if we talk about abortion? Or are you pro-life? You want to position yourself in a, in, a, in a set of strength. And so many times when this discussion is brought up, it's losing. You can't lose your salvation. And I'll agree, there's a 100% chance you can't lose it. God's never lost anything, and he's not going to lose anything today. But throughout the Bible, let me explain very carefully through the stories of the Old Testament to the scriptures of the New Testament, there is a falling away. There is a walking away. There is a deciding within yourself, a backsliding, as Jeremiah would say in the Old Testament, my people have backslidden from me. Now, now as we break this down, understand, I'm not worried so much about your theology. I'm, I'm I'm not trying to change your theology. Because really, we're probably closer than you think, no matter how you fall on this. It's been pumped into our Western culture for so long that that it's pretty much just a given. You, You can't lose salvation. But here's the key. The people who write that, you have to understand very carefully what they're saying. They're saying that when somebody gets genuinely saved, they will not go back to sin. So what if somebody does go back to sin? Well, that person was only faking it and holding on and really never truly was saved. That's the theology. Now, I don't have a problem with that as long as somebody will walk up to somebody who we thought was saved is now having an affair And you're willing to walk up to them and point your finger and say, you never were saved in the first place. Now, we don't want to do that, so that's become a very muddled conversation. Does this make sense to you? Or you can go even to a greater extent where I fall that, yes, you were saved. You actually received salvation. But they are true in this point. You were transformed in your heart, but you never allowed God to transform your mind. So in 
time dabbling back in what you should not have been dabbling in and thinking on what you should not have been thinking in, you were drawn back to something and you walked away from the goodness of God and you walked away from the mercies of God back to something that you kept dreaming and thinking about, much like Israel does in the wilderness, even though God saves them and delivers them, their mind was never set free from the bondage that they were in. So any moment that nobody was around to hold them accountable, they're building calves and they're having orgies and they're doing all kinds. What's the problem? They were transformed in one way, but not totally. Now, however you fall on this is okay with me. I don't care. You can either tell someone they never had it, or you can tell someone they had it and they lost it. But either way, the Bible makes very clear that people backslide. Amen? Okay, I'm getting these weird looks. So let's just use Scripture to explain what I'm talking about. He says, go back with me to verse 12. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you a a what? An evil, unbelieving heart. When he says heart, he means what? Mind. He says, says, it's not that, and he says brothers. He's not saying you're not saved. He's saying, brothers, listen, here's the problem. Be careful that you don't get this unbelieving mind cranked up because here's what's going to happen. Leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care. But what you should be doing is exhort one another, verse 13, every day as long as it is called today. That none of you may be what? Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's, he's talking about do not allow yourself to be drawn back away. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to win. So when people say, well, it has nothing to do with me, it's all God. That's not scripture. You can pull out that one scripture, maybe two, and make yourself feel good. But listen to me, when you take the context of the whole Bible, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. So here's today, if we hear his voice and do not harden our hearts as in the rebellion, he's talking about in in Egypt, uh, talking about Israel. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned? Those bodies fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were? This is the apostle teaching this doctrine to make people very understand. Listen, there was a picture in the Old Testament. There was a purpose for this. Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of? What keeps you walking with the Lord? Belief. What causes you to be separated from the Lord? Unbelief. And guess who gets to choose? You. 
You do. You get to choose. Let, let me see if I can show it to you again. Chapter 10, verse 24, and I don't have time to deal. This is not my, my purpose tonight, but I need you to get a taste of what story Eli is in the Bible. Here's what it says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Now, usually we just pull that one scripture out because we want people to do what? Go to church. That's the scripture we use to get you to go to church. We don't, don't, don't cease the assembling of yourselves together, especially as you see the day drawing nigh. You know, you got to be in church. It tells us to be in church. But we stop and we don't realize what the next verses say. Here's what it says. For if we go on deliberately after... Now, what does that sound like to you? Saved? Uh-huh. Some of y'all are like, man, this is messing my theology. I understand. The Bible will mess up your theology. It will tear your theology to pieces. But this is what the Bible says. Nobody has a problem with the scripture before. We all need to go to church. But the very next verse says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately, and, and this is what I'm talking about. It's not a mistake. It's not you, oh, oh Lord, I messed up. Forgive me. That's not what I'm talking about. That's, that's not, we're talking about someone who is deciding in their heart and in their mind, I am not serving him anymore. I am walking away from this relationship. I would rather go back to my friends and rather go back to my life and rather go back to this. This is what we're talking. This is what Paul is talking about. Not losing something. Oh, I lost it. No, no, you won't lose it. You, you'll know the moment you forfeited it. You'll know it. From the inside out, you'll know it. For if we go on sitting, delivering after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a what? sacrifice for sins, but a fearful, and here's where we mess up. Here's where I have the problem now in our generation. You want to know what's wrong with our generation? You want to know what's wrong with our churches? You want to, I'm fixed to explain it to you. When you bring this doctrine in and you don't teach it correctly on whichever way you teach it, if you don't teach it correctly, then you're going to end up with this, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury and fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy of the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do we think will be deserved by the one who has trampled under the foot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was what? Sanctified and has outraged the spirit of... You can't preach conviction if you tell everybody no matter what they do, they're okay. You've taken, you've taken half of the Bible and ripped it right out. So I don't care which side of this you stand on. I'm not arguing whether you believe in eternal security or this. I'm not, but you're going to have to come to the grips of if somebody is not living a godly life, you can't keep telling them they're okay. You either tell them they didn't get it or you tell them they walked away from it. And until the church gets back to this, yeah, we'll have a lot of people show up to places and we'll have a lot of big concerts, and we'll, but we will not have a changed society. Okay. 
I hope I didn't, I probably made everybody mad from both sides. So I, was, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't agree with either side. So I'm just like, I've just messed everybody up. I can only stay scriptural. That's the only thing I have. So your doctrines, your, your beliefs, what your mama told you doesn't mean nothing to me. I have to align it with scripture. This is important. Why? Because Romans chapter 1, three times. You go back to your papers now. We're back to our papers. Romans chapter 1, three times God gives them up. Every time they keep pushing God and saying, I don't want this. I don't. God says, I gave them up. And when they kept pushing for more and pushing for more, God said, I gave them up. Does that sound like somebody that just wants to kick you out? No. He's like, I'm bearing with you as much as I can. But the more you keep pulling away, eventually I have to release because you get to choose. So, the wrath of God then, understanding all of this, this is an important thought. The wrath of God is always ongoing. The wrath of God is always ongoing. If you're doing wrong right now, do you understand the wrath of God is, is on you? Now, it may just seem right right now. It's just, it's just stressing you out, worrying you. You, 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 you. you got all the... But the wrath of God is against those who willfully decide, I'm going to sin. The Bible says that the Spirit comes, one of His main goals is to convict people of sin. Now, Eli, though, has gone so far, he now does not have a will to fight it. He doesn't have the will to fight his kids. What he should have told those two boys in that meeting is totally different instead of whining and saying, now you boys know y'all shouldn't be doing this and you know it looks bad. And you know. he, he, should have, he should have dropped the hammer. But he doesn't have the will for it. Go with me to chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. I'll show you, give you a picture beginning at verse 1. I want you to get a picture of this man. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. So here's this young boy who is on fire, who is, who is, who is ministering. I mean, he, he's loving the ministry. He's, he's excited about reading and learning. And man, it's just, he's eating it up. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The, the man that was supposed to be having the vision was not having vision. He had done, done slipped away from that. He had done kind of eased back from that. And now notice what happened. The, and that at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not. So not only now was he losing steam and he was getting older and he couldn't turn it over to his two sons because he did a sorry job of preparing them. 
Instead of correcting them, getting them ready. But why is that so important? I'm fixing to show you why it's so important. Because this 90-something-year-old man who is fixing to fade off into the sunset is all of a sudden he can't count on his two sons because they're having sex with the women that are showing up to work at the church. That's what's happening. And at that time, Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God. It was getting to the point where there was nobody. And Samuel's just a boy. Nothing's been ready. Nothing's been prepared. Nothing. It was his job. And now it's too little. Too late. He has ignored, pushed aside. There's words here because number one, as you get to number one, number one, mercy dismissed is what Eli is dealing with. Eli is dealing with mercy dismissed. Let me give you some different words for it. To avoid, to withdraw, to veto, to disapprove, to forbid, to pass up, to dispute, to rebuke, rebuff, to, to scorn, to prohibit, retract. All these words describe what he was doing at the moment. Everything he should be doing, he wasn't. He was looking at the God of mercy and he was dismissing everything of his responsibility. He just dismissed it. I'm tired. I'm old. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to correct my sons. But I still want God. I still want God. I just don't want to do what I'm supposed to do. You ever get like that? Man, I, 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 want, I want it better. I just don't feel like getting up and going to church. I want our marriage. But I am not getting up and cooking dinner. I am not going to go to the other side of the couch and hug on them. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to sit here and wish it was different. And wonder why it's not. But I'm not going to give the effort. Verses 27 begins 1 Samuel 2 and 27. God is already knowing and laying this on Eli's heart. He feels it coming. So God goes to the next step. Chapter 2, verse 27 says there's a man that comes in 1 Samuel. And the man, it doesn't give his name. It doesn't give anything about him. It just says, the man of God. 
I like that. Because it doesn't matter who he is. Doesn't matter if he was a shop owner. Doesn't matter if he's the guy that swept the streets. It didn't matter who he was. Only thing that mattered was it was somebody that God personally said, you're my man and I need you to go tell Eli what's happening. And so the Bible says, and there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? And I want you to notice here, if you were sitting here and you were Eli, you have to answer these questions. He says, indeed, did I not reveal myself to Aaron? Aren't you a descendant of Aaron? And did I not reveal myself to him in Egypt in front of the house of Pharaoh and give him a special name? And Eli would say, yes. Verse 28. Notice how he builds this. We're rolling. 1 Samuel 2 and 28. All the way to 29. There we go. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? He said, not only was he special, did I not give him a privileged place? Did I not give him a privileged spot? How about this? To go up to my altar in my presence to burn incense before me? Did I not give Aaron and give your tribe and give your people a very special place in the house of God? To wear an ephod before me? The ephod was the most beautiful garment. Do we have a picture of, of that I think we pulled up that has Eli and, and Samuel? And, and if you ever met Eli and he ever came into the room, I mean, he had, he had the ephod on. He, he was, I mean, that's, that's Samuel walking around all the time. He is, the, he is the highest representative. God says, did I, not, did I not give you the ability to have all of this to take care of the house of God? Did I not give you a special robe to wear? Did I not give you a, a name? Did I not raise your family above every other family? Did I not do all of this? And Eli, listening to this man of God, is having to say, yes. Verse 29. And he keeps pounding him with the questions because when he speaks the next part, he needs to understand that, Eli, you have dismissed my mercy. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices? He could do the same thing to us. He could come to you and say, did I not save you when you were just begging for somebody to help you? Don't you remember when you were just crying and wanting God to save you and you'd get rid of all that guilt to your sin? Do you not remember that, that I saved you? Do you not remember that I wrote your name in my book and you are part of my family? Do you not know that I've allowed you to sit in heavenly places with my son? then why do you do what you do? If you know I've been gracious and merciful, 
Then Eli, why do you scorn my sacrifices and offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering of the people of Israel. Here's what they were doing. It wasn't enough that they had all the God. It was not enough that they were, they were promiscuous with the, the women and, and everything. It, it, it was not enough to do that. Here's, here was the, the thing that really got to God. Every year they had to bring the sacrifices. And the sacrifices were cut and then put on the altar to burn. Now here's the key. The sacrifices had to stay on the altar as an incense unto the Lord until all the fat had been burned off of it. My wife is a steak lover. Anybody got, got any steak lovers in here? God loves a good steak. Let me just put it to you. God loves a good steak. He says to whoever cooks his steak, you just cook it until there's no more fat left on it. Burn it all off. And that was supposed to be the incense unto God. But here's what, here's what Eli's sons had done. They were like, I don't like that burnt meat. I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I like it rare. I like my steaks rare. Well, you can't get them rare. You can't, you can't take. Oh, yeah. And they would forcefully go to the altar and someone would say, no, no, you can't take it off yet. We can't give it to you. It's not, it's not done yet. The fat is still burning. It's still, no, 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 go ahead and take it off. And if they wouldn't do it, they would forcefully do it. And, and what had happened was, if you notice the picture of Eli, and we'll get to Eli here in a little while, Eli had done got fat. His sons were fat. They didn't work. They ate steak when they wanted to, and they ate them the way they wanted to. This is what God is saying. You done got fat off of my offerings. You wouldn't honor me. Your sons meant more to you than I did. You know that was supposed to be unto me, but you took it off early so your sons could eat what they wanted. It's called backsliding. It's what I should have done, but I didn't give God what belonged to him. I know what I should have done. I know what I should have said. I know what I shouldn't have watched on TV. I know what I shouldn't have listened to on the radio, but we all sin a little bit, Brother Lot. No, we don't. You do. But no, we don't. Render unto God what's God's. So, go with me now to Numbers 4 and 16. He, he, he's describing these privileges. Listen, listen to what Numbers 4 and 16 says. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, shall have charge of the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, and the regular grain offering, and the anointing oil, and the oversight of the whole tabernacle and all that is in it of the sanctuary and all its vessels. Eli was set up like a king. People brought him grain. People brought him meat. People brought him everything. His one job was to stay close to God. Instead, 
He loved his boys more than he loved his God. And I don't think he really loved his boys because that's not true love. To know you're doing someone hurt and to call it love, just because you buy somebody a a candy bar doesn't mean you love them. They may not need the candy bar. No may have been the greatest love language you could have spoke. But Eli only said, yes, whatever you want, boys. Whatever you like, boys. Whatever makes you happy. As long as we can just keep peace in the house. It was a privilege. And to think of how anointed this guy was. In 1 Samuel 1 and 17, we don't have to go there. But in 1 Samuel 1 and 17, he is the guy who looks at Hannah and says, Hannah, may the Lord bless you and you have a son. He has that kind of authority. In the second chapter, when Elkanah comes every year with Hannah and they make a new little coat for Samuel, the Bible makes it very clear that Elkanah would come, they would make their sacrifice, they would give Samuel his little coat, and Eli would bless Elkanah and Hannah and say, may the Lord bless you. He must have had something because they had five more children. Three more boys and two girls. She wasn't barren. She ended up having half a dozen. That came from Eli. This this was his anointing. This was his privilege. This is what he had. But it was dismissed. It's not that important. Number two, judgment then is coming. Judgment then is coming. Let's go back to this man of God. He's told Eli, you've dismissed God's goodness. Now here's what God has to say. Go with me in your Bibles to verse 29 or verse 30. You've you've taken advantage of my sacrifice. You've taken advantage of of the things that I've given you. And so chapter 2, verses 30 through 34 says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. He said, I even made a promise that your house would always be it. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I shall be lightly esteemed by them. In other words, you don't move me no more. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength or cut off your arm so that there will be no old men in your house. When in distress, you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on all of Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. In other words, nobody in your house will ever live to be old. They'll die before they get old. Either die of causes or die by the sword. They will not live to be old like you. 
Not one of your grandsons, not one of your great-grandsons, nobody in your family from this moment on will ever grow old. The only one in whom I shall not cut off from my altar. He said, yes, I'm going to leave you at the altar, but here's the only reason I'm going to leave you at the altar. He said, I'm going to leave you there so that you can be the peasant, the, the least in the altar, and so that you will be at the altar and be spared, and only for the fact that you'll weep over the fact that you used to be there, but now you're here. He said, I'm going to leave one of your kinfolks that's there that's always going to walk around and say, well, I remember when Papa used to be over all this, but you'll never, ever have it again. I'm only going to leave them alive so they can cry over what they can't have. Let me tell you something. God is not the person you want to pull the chain of. He'll mess you up, your grandkids up, and your great-grandkids up if he wants to. God is not someone to toy with. The only one that will be will be like that. And shall the sins of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In other words, so that, so that the sign that you want to know that I'm telling you the truth and I'm from God, Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day. They're not going to die one day and another one die a few weeks later. No, no. They're both going to die at the same day, same time. Verse 36. And everyone who is left of your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. you gotta, you got to get this because understand what got them in trouble. Their greed. They had all the bread they wanted. They had, he said, let me tell you what your final curse is. Everyone who is left in your house shall come in, implore him who is over the house of God for a loaf of bread. And she'll say, please put me in one of the priest's places. Let me wash the cups. Let, let me sweep the floor. Let me do something. Why? That I may eat just a morsel of bread. He said, that's your heritage, Eli. That's going to be your family very soon. Now you would think, man, I, Eli's going to fall on his face and fast and start praying and crying. and, and... No. 1 Samuel 3, 4 through 18, and I don't have time to cover all of this, but this is the story where Samuel now, remember I said the oil, the lamp is going down. I read verses 1 through 3 a while ago that Eli's old, he can't see anymore, and Eli's getting to the point he don't care anymore. Well, this is where God shows up in the middle of the night and Samuel lays down by the altar and God speaks and says, Samuel. And Samuel thinks it's Eli. He runs in there and says, what do you want? And Eli says, boy, I didn't call you. Go lay down. And three times he does this. Eli is so messed up by now, he don't even know that God's trying to talk to Samuel. It takes three times before he finally realizes that's God. He finally tells Samuel, he says, Samuel, next time, just lay there. And, and, and when you hear that voice, just say, your servant hears you. Your servant hears it. And you know what? He did. And God tells Samuel from the very first prophecy, God tells Samuel, says, Samuel, I'm fixing to tell you something that's going to hurt you, son. It's going to upset you. But don't you be disturbed. This has been coming for a long time. And I'm sure Samuel knew what his 
what Eli's sons had been doing. I knew, I mean, he knew all the rumors that were in town. He knew. He said, Samuel, I'm fixing to take care of Eli. I'm fixing to wipe his family off the map. The man who's been your teacher for all this time, he's fixed to be gone. I'm, fixing to, I'm just letting you know. The next morning, Eli, and I love this, Eli looks at Samuel and says, now tell me what God said. And then he says this to Samuel. He says, if you don't tell me exactly what he says, may God do the same thing to you. The Bible says Samuel told him everything that was in his heart, everything that God had told him. And here, go with me to verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18. I need to, I need to read this scripture because this is so much into the heart of Eli. Are you seeing a picture of him now? Verse 18, so Samuel told him everything and did, and, and he had nothing from him. What would you do? And Eli said, he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. What? Your boys are fixing to die. It's the Lord. If you're not careful, these same kind of people you hear about this salvation stuff will be the same people that tell you this phrase. Let the Lord do whatever the Lord's going to do. Let me tell you why they tell you that. Because they don't know him. They only heard the rumors about him. Well, God does whatever God wants to do. No, the Bible says the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Prayers of a righteous man can turn the heart of God, change his mind. But someone that doesn't know him, well, God does whatever, you know. You have some bad things happen to good people too. It'll become a norm because you won't have a relationship with the one that you could fall on your face and say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, have mercy. Restore my sight. Give me five more years. Hezekiah prayed for just a little more. God gave him 15. Eli, this great man of God who had been a great man all his life, could have said, give me five years and I will get this thing right before Samuel. No. It's the Lord. Whatever he wants to do. He's done heard it from this one guy. Now he heals it, heals it from, from Samuel. Now go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 through 18. This is the judgment. Begins. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle. This is, and I know I'm covering a lot of story. I told you it would take me 20-something weeks to do this thing if we did it long. But basically, the Philistines have attacked. Israel was defeated the first day. And they were like, I don't know what we're going to do. One guy finally decides, hey, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. Who's over the Ark of the Covenant? Phineas and Hophni, they're, they're in charge of the Ark. They go back to Shiloh. They tell the boys, they say, look, we're losing this battle. We need God in the battle. And they said, okay, we'll carry the Ark. And they carry the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of God in the battle. Boy, at first, everybody's screaming and hollering. And, and, and... But the Philistines decide, well, we'll fight them anyway. We may lose. We're going to fight. But they didn't lose. 
Not only did they win, but it was a great slaughter. They captured the Ark of the Covenant, killed Hophni and Phinehas. They died on the same And now here's this man, only one man that runs back from Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. He's, and it's almost 20 miles he's run. He's run a marathon from where the battle took place to where he's at in Shiloh. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. <laughs> he ran with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. In other words, that rascal wasn't just running. He was climbing, crawling. He, he, was, he was like a, a rabbit going through the woods now. He come out the other end looking rough. It wasn't no stroll down the street. Because he, he didn't know down the roads whether the Philistines would be there. He's, not, he's, not, he's just by himself now. He's scared. He's cutting through every corner. He's cutting through woods. He, anything he can do to not be seen. And he's torn up. He's scratched up. He's messed up. He comes running into town. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on the seat by the road. Eli is pointed toward him. But here's the problem. Eli's blind. Eli hears footsteps running by. And then he hears all this commotion. Listen, I'll just go ahead and say it. Eli was sitting on the seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the... Eli knew what was coming. But I want you to notice he wasn't crying for his boys. He wasn't crying for his boys. He doesn't give up on his boys. He was crying... For the glory of God. He realized that I was the caretaker of the glory. And I did not take care of it. For he trembled at the ark was gone. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? The guy ran right by him, tells everybody in town, and Eli's still sitting there on the road, and he's like, what are they talking, what's going on? And so here's what happened. And he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came to told Eli. He said, I ran back. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. Now, you've got to understand how the writer writes this. This is not a, this is not written as, doctrinal writings. This is written as narratives. So Shakespeare does this. It'd be like, well, what did you eat today? And I would look at you and I would say, well, this morning when I got up, you know, I decided to wear these brown trousers right here and everything. And, and, and it's been a very good day. It's been a good day. I got a lot of work done, got some stuff done and, and was thinking about where I'd like to eat. And then where did you eat? And this guy is building the story. The narrative is to build the anticipation for the reader. Now we already know what's coming, but we, we sense that Eli doesn't know what's coming. So imagine Eli sitting there and he says, I am a man who has come from the battle. Okay, all right, you come from the battle. So that must, you survived, that must be a good thing. I fled from the battle today. Oh, that's a bad thing. And he said, how did it go, my son? See, he's, he's like, tell me. 
And he brought the news and answered. He said, Israel has fled from the Philistines, and there also has been a great defeat among the people. Okay. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. But none of this moves him. None of this moves him. You've got to hear it. The story is growing. It's growing. And the ark of God was captured. As soon as he mentioned Eli is a good man. It is not that Eli did not love God. He just loved other things more. He just loved other things more. Some of you are sitting here today. You you ain't got nothing against God. You just don't love Him enough to to change. So the only response to that is, well, one day when you meet Him and He sentences you to hell, since you didn't want to worship Him now, you'll get to meet Him one day and He'll tell you why you're not going to heaven because you didn't serve Him and you put something else. And you'll think at that moment, I should have never loved that. That thing is gone. That thing isn't even... But it'll be too late. It'll be too little, too late. But a lot of you being mean. No. I'm telling you, as long as there's life, there's hope. Whoever you are in this room, you can decide right now, I am not going down that path. I am not meeting God like that. I am not having myself stand in a judgment throne one day in the great white throne, which is basically a courtroom, and it's not about whether you are or are not going to heaven. You're already set. You just get your day in court to explain to God why in the world your whole life you did not trust his son but trusted everything else and loved everything else but turned his son down now give me an excuse nobody John writes in Revelations blessed are those who are part of the first rapture not those that are part of the second judgment that's just a court date where you already know you're guilty you just got to stand before the judge All because on this world you loved something more than you loved him that won't mount to a hill of beans now. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken. And usually that's just where people leave it. You know, he broke his neck. He fell off. He was old. He fell off. He bro- Listen to me. And he died, for the man was old and... Yeah. 
The life that he chose is the life that killed him. He weighed so much that when he fell, the weight of a fat man who had obesely lived his life for himself and his boys took his life. It's got nothing to do with whether you're skinny or not because I am not talking about fat people or skinny people. It's to tell you the narrative of the story. The thing that he decided I'm going to give my life to is the very thing at the end that kills him. And the thing that shocks him that he should have loved couldn't save him. Well, that's a sad story, Pastor. Here's what God would say in Romans 1 and 18 to us. Verses 18 through 21 says this, Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the That's how it happens. Now, does that mean God's going to have wrath or God has wrath? He has wrath. The wrath of God is consistent. You may not have felt the full blunt of it yet, but God is using stroke by stroke and lick by lick and blow by blow to try to wake you up. Verse 19. For what can, we, can be known about God it is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. That's why the world fights so hard to come up with evolution and come up with everything else. And aliens got us here. And we're, you know why? Because every time... A sinner walks outside, he knows that the same God that made this is coming one day to judge me. Job said, he said, the thing that I fear the most is when God rises up and visits me, what will I answer him? Job said, it's the only thing I worry about. I don't worry about nothing else. The only thing that I think about is one day God's going to rise up and he's going to come visit Job. And what will I answer him on that day about Job? For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. You know, the crazy thoughts. Let's go do this. Let's do that. Maybe this will work. Let's drink this. Let's live like this. They, they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were... How bad could it get? Well, ask Eli how bad it can get. Skip down to verse 28 through 32. I'll show you what he says to us. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased minds to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. I didn't even know they even had Facebook back in those days. <laughs> Slanders, haters of God, insolent, naughty, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. It means your parent tells you to do something you do differently. Let me tell you what you got in you. You got a spirit that's drawing you away from God, backsliding you. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death. You know what's coming. I just told you. You can't walk out tonight and not know. Pastor doesn't tell me. I got to meet God. I got to give an account. So you can't. He said, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who You hang out with other people laughing and they're doing it. You make light of it. You think it's funny. Like nothing's ever going to happen. Number three. It would be a bad feeling if not for one statement that this guy makes. In the middle of all of the stuff he tells Eli, just like Hannah gives part of her prayer and describes one day a king that's coming, an anointed king, we get another piece of the puzzle of the crown. In this man's speaking to Eli in verse 35, he lets out something that speaks futuristic. And here's what he says in 1 Samuel 2 verse 35. And I will raise up for myself. This is God. I will raise up for myself a faithful. He said, Eli, don't you worry, buddy. You wouldn't do it. But I'm going to raise me up one who will be a priest. Faithful unto me. Who shall do according to what is in my heart. And in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. In the middle of this, he says, you know what? There ain't a king yet, but there's going to be a king, Hannah says. And this man of God who's no named, but he's speaking to Eli, says, there is not a good priest yet. But let me tell you something, Eli. God has done decreed. He's going to raise himself up a priest. And we know that in the New Testament, the Bible says that Jesus is that high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is a high priest forever. There is none that is going to go before him and none that's going to come after him. He is forever the high priest for all the children of God. That's why now I can come boldly to the throne room of grace because God sits there, the Father, and my high priest sits there, my brother, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, make an intercession for me. Verse 30, what he says again to reiterate this, what is so special about this priest? 
Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will And those who shall be lightly esteemed. Why is that important, Brother Lot? Because if you read near the end of the Bible... There's a specific scripture that says, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Priests are judged much more harshly than the world. I expect my judgments to always be harder than the guy downtown. Because the guy downtown doesn't know him. The guy downtown doesn't pray to him. The guy downtown doesn't honor him and believe in him. But when God says, Tim, you are a high priest, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people called to good works, he's saying, Tim, you, like my son Christ, who is your example, You are to live this way. And I give honor unto those who honor me. And those who despise me, I don't really think about a whole lot. I don't know about you, but I want to be thought about a lot. I'm going to close with this and I'm through. You got your other paper, right? Did I fill in all the blanks? Good. The other paper is basically Paul Bunyan's uh, book, Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Nobody read that either. Y'all got a lot of reading to do. Used to we had to read that in school almost. But basically in, in Pilgrim's Progress, there's this journey of this man called Christian. And Christian is going through all these different journeys. And the 10th one that he goes through is where him and Hopeful are in a conversation. And him and Hopeful are in a conversation about temporary. Temporary is the other character that was walking along with him. But temporary now has turned back and gone back to his old ways. And Hopeful has said, now this is the reasons why temporary did it. And he looks at Christian and he asks Christian a question. He he says, "Can can you tell me the process? Can you explain to me the process that that it took to get there? And Christian says, I will. will." This is the process a person goes through. There's nine steps that Christian talks about. And I want you very carefully, because I do this, I want you to ask yourself, where are you? On the ladder that leads you to walking away, where are you? What does it take to become a backslider? Christian, well, I think think it's like this, he says. First, number one, they withdraw their thoughts as much as possible from the remembrance of God, death, and judgment to come. 
First thing you've got to do is, I don't, I don't want to think about eternity. I don't want to think about, I don't want to think about what judgment's coming. I just want to think about what? Right now. What's fun right now? I'm not worried about next week. I'm not worried about if I died tomorrow. I'm not worried. I just want to know. First step when you walk away is you stop thinking about eternity and what you're living for, and you start focusing on the things that are here. That's why I said Sunday, I can fix anybody's problem in 30 minutes. All you got to do is deny yourself. The moment you take your eyes off of this world and put it on there, you'll be all right again. Your problems begin when you take your eyes off of heaven and you try to find something in this world that you substitute for heaven. I'd give up heaven for, I'd give up heaven for, I mean, they even make songs about it. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. Number one, you have to quit thinking about, stop thinking about eternity, stop thinking about your real reasons. I know sometimes I come across as a mean person, and I don't mean to. But what it really is, is I really don't care about all the stuff most of y'all care about. I, I, I don't care about Christmas trees and, and, and all the, none of that is the greatest th- thought in my life. Eternity is the greatest thought. What can I do to make eternity better? Because I'm going to spend timeless time there. I might get to spend 75 years here. Which one do you think I feel like is important? He said, if you can't do that, then number two will grab you. Then by degrees, they give up their self-discipline. So once I stop thinking about eternity, guess what happens? My self-discipline start to break down, such as private prayer. How often do you pray nowadays? Do you have a private prayer every day? How about, how about your, your Bible reading? Curbing their lust, watching their conduct, regretting sins. If you do make a mistake, does it bother you? Do you quickly say, Lord, I'm sorry, and turn from that? Not just, I hope nobody found out, but do you, you quickly change whatever needs to be changed, whatever has to happen. If you can't control your phone and, and, and you keep looking up stuff on your phone, are you willing to take a hammer to your phone and say, I'll tell you what, I'd rather live without a phone and go to heaven than have five phones and go to hell. How serious do you take your life? But if you quit thinking about heaven and you got your phone on you all the time and you got all this going on, it'll take you to number three. Then they shun the companion, the company of lively, warm Christians. I mean, you don't want to hang around somebody talking about heaven. You don't want to hang around somebody that when you show them something you've got on TikTok and you show them like, ooh, that's gross. I'll find me a friend that does laugh at my jokes. You can't hang around warm Christians anymore because the stuff you're thinking about and the stuff you talk about and the stuff you don't do doesn't match up anymore. Is this okay? Well, I'm just wearing somebody out. Maybe me. Number four, after that, once they get to where they got them some good old friends and they don't read their Bible no more, they don't have prayer time anymore. They don't go to church anymore. They don't think about heaven. They think about what I can do tonight. Nobody will figure out. Then number four says, after that, they grow negligent 
to public duties such as hearing and reading uh, the Word of God, attending meetings. They, they get to the point where, hey, did you go to church this Sunday? No, I didn't make it this Sunday. Okay. Number five, then they begin to find fault with Christians. You know, I just, that Christian stuff, you know, I, I, I you know, there's just so many people, hypocrites and everything. In a, you'll start poking holes and finding flaws in Christians. Let me go ahead and explain something to you. The church is a hospital. And let me go ahead and break something until you didn't realize. You are one of the sick people that come. You're not one of the healthy people that just go watch. But if you get to hanging out with your friends and get to hanging out without the God and you get to hanging out without the Word and prayer, before long, all you notice are the negative things and the things you don't like. It ain't just not going anymore. Now you can laugh about poking fun at Jesus on some cartoon and, 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 and it gets easier, doesn't it? Number five, then they begin to find fault with Christians and different things. Number six, then they begin to adhere to and associate themselves with carnal, loose, and wanton men. In other words, now it's an open thing. It's not just somebody I hang around. It's people that I go eat with, people that I... It's my lifestyle now. These are my friends. These are my buddies. It's not just... First, you remember how you tell Pastor Lot, I'm just trying to win them to the Lord, Brother Lot. That's why I go play golf with them. Now you don't even use the excuse anymore. You just play golf with them. They're my friends. Number seven... Then they give way to carnal, wanton discourse and, and secret and glad that if they can see such things in any or count it honest, they may more boldly do through their example. In other words, now because they are hiding this sin and they're living this sinful life, if they can find anything that you do as a Christian, then that gives them an excuse to say, well, you, you mess up just like I do. So now I'm, I can openly tell you, I, well, I, you know, I, I, still, I still get high every now and then, or I still get wasted, or I still do this, or I still... But, it, you know, you got your stuff too. Man, this would be funny if I didn't want to read somebody's mail, wouldn't it? I didn't write this book. Don't get mad. He's dead. But it was a good book. You need to read it. Number eight, after this, they begin to play with little sins openly. Now I'm, now I'm getting more bold. I'm going to, you know, I do it out in the open and, and kind of like it hurts a little bit when somebody makes fun of me, but it's, I get used to it. Finally, when you're full-blown, not lost anything, but you have willfully walked away. Let me tell you what it looks like. And then, being hardened, they show themselves as they are. Thus being launched again into the gulf of misery. And unless a miracle of grace prevent it, they everlastingly perish in their own deceivings. Unless God sends somebody to preach a message like I'm preaching to you right now. Unless you hear a radio station 
unless you hear a sermon, unless somebody catches your ear or something calamity happens, and unless the grace of God shows up somewhere. This is what the apostle says, that once someone has reached this state, what could you preach to them? Some of you in this room, what, what could I preach to you? You already know Jesus lived, he died, he rose from the dead. You already know he's coming again. I can't scare you. What do you preach to a person who knows all the facts but willfully says, I'll just take my chances? We call that person backslidden. And they're just as lost then as they were the day they came to the Lord. And you may know some of those people. And I pray to God you're not one of those people. I pray you're not. Because there's not a sermon you'll ever come on Sunday and hear that I'll preach it in such a way that it'll just draw you. No. If you don't listen to that voice that's inside your heart right now that's telling you, turn. There's no amount of words I'll ever tell you that'll mean anything. So if that voice is yelling at you, do it. Do it. Not for me, not for this church, not for... Do it for you. And the future God has for you. And the destiny God has for you. And not the destiny this world's got for you. Will you pray with me? Father, I can say no more. God, whoever you're talking to, either in this room or whoever will hear this online or hear this on a podcast and will say, wow, that's me he's talking to. God, let your Holy Spirit one more time move strong upon them. One more time shake them to their foundations. It means nothing to me if they become millionaires or they have nice cars or they retire in nice houses. It means nothing to me if they return in their sin and they lose heaven. If I gain the whole world and lose my soul, what will I have gained? Nothing. God, let us take seriously our walk with you. We cannot save ourselves. It's grace that saves us. But it is our choice to walk with you that keeps us in our relationship. Stir us once again so that we don't fall away. Walk away. As Paul said, Demas has forsaken me for the love of this present world. Don't let that be spoken of us. God, I thank you tonight for these incredible people. 
I don't think anybody in this room was here by accident. I believe they were here by purpose. And God, I believe in the name of Jesus right now that you've spoken to them. And that's enough. That's more than enough. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Hey, go give that devil fits.